We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark uh, really since the beginning of the year, and today we're beginning the sixth chapter of Mark, and it's, it's kind of easy to get in the weeds when we're plodding through a book of the Bible like that. I mean, Mark is full of activity, the way he tells the story of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is going around doing healings and exorcisms, having conflict with people, uh, and it's, it, it's fascinating stuff. But let me just remind us um, of some of the bigger picture narratives and motifs that Mark is trying to get us to pay attention to as we walk through the gospel. Mark is trying to organize the sayings of Jesus and the stories of Jesus and Mark's own convictions about who Jesus is into a book or actually originally a scroll in order that his audience and the generations that comes after that audience might know Jesus and relate to him. These amazing stories of Jesus' wise teaching and his works of power and his confrontation with earthly authorities they're all there so that we, the listener and the reader, would ask ourselves, what do I think about all of this stuff? What do I believe about Jesus? And what am I going to do with my life in light of what I believe about Jesus? In this sermon, we're going to cover two small sections of Mark chapter 6, and these small sections represent two different communities with two different responses to Jesus and two different outcomes because of their responses to Jesus. As we walk through the text, let me encourage you to just ask yourself, do I identify with one of these communities more than the other? Do I identify with one of these communities more than the other? And if so, how might Jesus be inviting you to respond to the message tonight? Let's hear the first part of the story. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and it begins like this. Jesus left where he was, and he went to his hometown. He was accompanied by his disciples, and when Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? And what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? I mean, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters like right here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, well, except in his own town, among his own relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except for, you know, laying his hands on a few sick people to heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So, Jesus has been traveling all around Galilee up until this point. He's been declaring the good news that with his arrival on earth, so the reign of God has been breaking into the world. Thus far, Jesus has delivered human beings from demonic oppression. He's healed the sick. He's even raised the dead, calmed raging seas, and taught in such a way that people are amazed at his wisdom and insight into the scriptures. 
And in many ways, despite Jesus' efforts to keep a low profile, you know how he's always telling people like, hey, don't tell everybody about this. Despite those efforts, he's sort of a celebrity. And wherever Jesus goes, he's attracting crowds of people. Some of those people are curious. Some of those people are desperate. Some of them are needy. Some of them want to hear Jesus to argue with him. But whatever their motives, Jesus attracts a crowd. And as we enter into chapter 6, Jesus is now returning into his hometown of Nazareth for the first time in a while. Now, during the first century, Nazareth was about the size of 300 people, which was sort of an average small little town in first century Palestine. Most of the people in Nazareth would have been agrarians, just a blanket term for saying they probably made a living with their hands. Farming, leatherwork, construction, metalwork, raising animals, and most importantly for our purposes, in a town like Nazareth, everybody knows everybody. Like, not just their names, and not just what families they're connected to, and not just what they do for work, but like everything. 300 people is not much larger than the size of our church, <laughs> and you live in the same town. I mean, there are elders there who know that the mayor of the city, right? Like, remember when that kid was in diapers. And some of the old ladies remember that the local rabbi used to be a 12-year-old boy throwing rocks at chickens, and they had to scold him for it, right? Everybody knows everybody in a town like Nazareth. And these towns, most of these small towns, had synagogues. Synagogue is a word like, like you know how a church is not a building? Church is an ecclesia. It is a gathering of believers, right? A synagogue is literally a word that means a gathering of people, uh, and it would be Jewish people that are getting together for worship, and they would worship by uh, chanting the psalms, reciting the psalms, listening to the scriptures, and listening to interpretation of the scriptures. And in a synagogue, uh, of course, uh, rabbis would teach people outside of synagogue, but in synagogue, any adult male could come up and read the scriptures and give a thought about the scriptures. And so Jesus is now visiting Nazareth, and he comes to synagogue, and he comes up to share. And the people are astonished at his teaching. Now, how do the people respond to this amazing man who's sharing the scriptures with them? Well, they begin to cut him down. Notice the passive verbs in these sentences. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? Such miracles performed by his hands. The passive descriptions of Jesus are a way of throwing shade on him. It's like they acknowledge his impressive teaching, his wisdom and his power, but refuse to acknowledge that those things could have actually come from him. They're in a sense suggesting that the miracles performed by Jesus' hands are not miracles uh, performed by him, but almost through him as if he's just a puppet or a vessel. They refuse to respect Jesus as the source of his own teaching and his own wisdom and his own power. Oh, then they go on. Uh, in this, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters like right here with us? It, the word here for carpenter is not so much a woodworker like we think of today. Uh, it's, it's a blanket word for construction worker. 
Jesus was probably a guy in the trades who could work with stone and brick and wood, worked with his hands. And it's not so much that the people in Nazareth despised the trades. They were tradespeople too. But they just despised the idea of one of their own becoming uppity, being so wise and such a teacher and standing out above them. By calling Jesus the son of Mary and not son of Joseph, they're basically saying, you're the son of an illegitimate, you're an illegitimate child, born out of wedlock. They're trying to cut him down. See, the people of Jesus' hometown, a town of 300 where everyone knows everyone, it's like family. They're familiar with Jesus. They saw him grow up. They know his brothers. They know his mother. They know his sisters. How can this guy be claiming all of this authority? And here's the crux of it all. Here's why this is so nuts. Because they know Jesus is special. They know he's special. They've heard the stories. They've heard him teach firsthand, and yet they refuse to put their trust in him. They refuse to submit to Jesus. Sociologists talk about this phenomenon as the tall poppy syndrome. Has its roots in ancient Rome, the tyrannical king Tarkin, the proud, drew his sword. He was in a field of poppies with his son, Uh, His his son was a young adult at the time, and the poppies were growing, and there's a few poppies taller than the others, and so he takes his sword, and he cuts off the taller poppies so that they're all the same size, and he says, son, this is what I want you to do to the leadership of this neighboring rival town. If you take out the standout leaders from the town, then they'll all submit and fall into line. Now, it doesn't matter what culture you're in, because every culture has its version of the tall poppy syndrome. Uh, the Japanese say that the, tall, uh, the, the nail that stands out gets the hammer, right? A- and it, I love this one in the Pacific Northwest. It's called the bucket of crab syndrome. Any crabbers out there? Uh, I grew up crabbing, and you don't need a lid on a bucket of crabs because as soon as one starts to crawl out, the others pull it down. They just can't handle the one getting out. It's, it's science. You should try it. It's, it's really hilarious. The point is that humans are reluctant to honor and respect those who rise above us from within. Whether it's family or hometown hero, we love to be proud of people that our hometown sends out, but we don't really want to submit to them. Uh, Corey and I, when we started having kids, we just could not wait to teach them to ski. Skiing is one of those things that we did even, uh, I think, our second date. Uh, we just loved to do that together. We wanted to have a family that enjoys the snow, and so we get, like, Sophia and Stella up there, and we're teaching. And Corey used to be a ski instructor even before we got married, so she knows how to teach little kids, and she's teaching them, you know, pizza pie and french fries to go fast and all of the stuff, and you know what we get? Kids just yell at us. You don't know what you're talking about. So you know what we did? We just said, forget this. The best money we ever spent was getting those kids ski lessons for two reasons. One is we got to ski and have fun. And B, they actually learned. And you know, someday we're going to be keeping up, uh, trying to keep up with them. But one day I saw Stella's ski class, and I'm thinking to myself, what, what is the secret sauce here, right? So there's this 19-year-old, maybe, uh, Australian um, woman, because, you know, like a lot of these ski resorts, you, you get New Zealand and Australian uh, people come and work there for our winter, because it's their summer. Um, and, you know, she's like, yeah, that's right, Stella, yeah, just get down there and just do a little wedgie. Just do a little wedgie. I'm like, 
That's exactly what we were telling her to do. I just didn't call it a wedgie, but you know. Do you think this 19-year-old like knew how to ski better than, I mean, we, we'd ski longer than she has been alive. The point wasn't that she had any secret sauce or it wasn't a wedgie versus pizza. It was that somebody else was doing it and not someone my kid was familiar with, right? And adults, we do this too. It's why there's a phrase that's saying, never meet your heroes. That's why that's a true phrase. Um, we love to put people who we don't know on pedestals. But when we get too familiar with them, we take them for granted, we discount their authority because, well, we, we kind of know the dirty stuff on them, those annoying ticks and habits. We often listen to experts on podcasts or books more than the people in our own lives who have similar or maybe even greater experience. And my hunch is that most of us would rather listen to someone on a podcast or a book or television because we don't have to submit to them. We can consume all of the good things they have to say, and then we don't actually have to follow any of it, and they'll never know. Jesus is not just a good teacher or a worker of miracles so that people can be in awe of him and the idea of him. Jesus, says Mark, is God in the flesh. He's the king of the inbreaking kingdom. To trust in Jesus is to submit to him. It is to follow him. It is to learn to do the things that he says are good to do. Before we're too critical of the people in Jesus' hometown, consider that many of us in this room are also familiar with Jesus. I mean, we gather for worship on a regular basis. We sing these great songs about Jesus. You hear sermons. We study the Bible in small groups, right? Um, if we're not careful, we can get too familiar with Jesus. We can domesticate him in our minds and put him in a box in our, our, our set of, uh, of theological categories, and you see stuff like this all the time on social media. That's the worst offender. Whether it's theological conservatives or theological liberals, uh, both those sides love to tell us what Jesus would do in such and such social situation or how Jesus would vote politically. Oh, they, they know what Jesus would do because they're so familiar with him, right? It would be wise, maybe, to exercise caution and just to ask ourselves, do I relate to Jesus as my Savior and Lord, or is he just my Savior? Another way to think about it is that following Jesus ought to bring you great comfort and great challenge. They're not mutually exclusive. Submitting to the one who calls us to fidelity in marriage celibacy and singleness, the one who calls us to love our enemies, to reconcile proactively with people we've offended, and to forgive people who have offended us, who calls us to give of our finances and care for the marginalized and underserved in our communities, following that God ought to be challenging, like for your whole life. If following Jesus is not really a struggle for you, you might want to ask yourself, have I made him too familiar? 
Now let's look at the second section in our story. Mark 6, 7 through 13. Then Jesus went around from village to village, calling the twelve to him, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place is not welcoming to you or doesn't listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Well, then they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. So in this second section, Jesus is also surrounded by people who know him. Uh, but they know him in a different way than his hometown crowd knew him. See, Jesus' disciples aren't just familiar with him, they're faithful to him. Ancient rabbi-disciple uh, relationships were incredibly intimate. Like, we do discipleship like, let's meet for coffee once in a while and be in a small group, but like, your lives are basically cut off after that. Like, it, we just go on with our lives Part of that's just our culture, right? But the rabbi-disciple relationship, there's an axiom of a disciple should be painted in the dust of his rabbi's feet, which means that you should be just right behind him. Wherever he goes, I'm just following the rabbi. I mean, there's crazy stories about like disciples waiting outside the outhouse while the rabbi's in there doing his business, right? And like outside, like they're in the house with the rabbi, but you know, the only thing off limits is like the bedroom. It's just this, this kind of crazy stuff. And so these disciples of Jesus, you have to imagine, like, they're traveling everywhere. And have you been backpacking with friends before? I know you, yeah, a lot of you have. Yeah, you know, when you're out there in the trail for days, maybe even just one overnight, like, you get intimate, like, really fast. Like, somebody's gassy. You, somebody, I know they're going to the bathroom over there. Oh, that person stinks, you know. It, like, Jesus isn't this whole, like, he stank. He probably had stomach problems. <laughs> you know, like, like they, they know him. Like, they know him when he's, when he's fatigued. They know him when he's ticked off. They know him around the campfire when he's cracking jokes, right? Like, they know Jesus. They're familiar with him, but they're faithful to him. There's a lot of details here in the passage that I'm not going to necessarily address because my focus is somewhere else, but there's, a, there's some I just want to say something about. So, um, like, there's details here about the disciples being sent out in pairs and taking only a staff and no bread and no money and no bag and only one tunic. Um, and over the centuries, there have been different people and movements that have read into this passage that this is some sort of ideal, as if Christian missionaries should have nothing, take nothing, travel in pairs, you know, like following it like it's a blueprint. Uh, but this isn't a blueprint for mission. This is very clearly a theological statement about God doing something new in and through Jesus and the future church. And let me show you why. In our scripture reading today uh, from Deuteronomy 8, we were reminded that the 12 tribes of Israel were rescued from Egypt through the Exodus. You know, the Exodus story, right? So while in the wilderness, Moses had a staff, right? And that did a lot of stuff. <laughs> and, and they had no food of their own, but God provided for them manna and quail on a daily basis. 
Um, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and yet their sandals and their clothes, they didn't have spare clothes, they didn't wear out. It was a miracle from God. And when they gave witness to other people about God or in a court of law, they had to do it in pairs. Because a witness of two carried authority with it. And so in this story, Jesus is doing a new thing. He's implying that there is a new exodus in which the people of God are not going to be limited to an ethnic group, but it's going to be open to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, which is pretty good news. I don't see a whole lot of ethnic Israelite people here, right? Like, that's good news. We're in the family now because of this new movement. So he sends out the 12 disciples, representing the 12 tribes. He sends them in pairs so their witness would be official. And he tells them not to bring any extra food, clothes, money, because God is going to provide as a sign and a symbol of the new exodus. So there you go. Side note, footnote, whatever you want to call it. I think, I think it's super interesting. Okay, but now, the point I wanted to drive home is that the first group of people from Nazareth, the ones who were familiar with Jesus, they didn't submit to him. And he was hardly able to do much for them. Jesus is the kind of God who doesn't force his way on people. Even if he wants to heal, like he's not gonna make you get healed. But what's counterintuitive is that when we do submit to Jesus, we actually walk in more authority and in more power than when we try and preserve our power by not submitting. Notice that the disciples show faithfulness. They submit to Jesus' command to go out and cast out demons and heal and preach about Jesus and the inbreaking reign of God that's coming with him. And that must have sounded crazy. Like, hey, just go out in pairs to your own countrymen and tell them to repent, even though they already think that they're doing fine, right? It's kind of like the same level of faithfulness as God telling Noah to build a giant boat in the middle of the desert when it hadn't rained or flooded in a long time. It's like, what is this guy doing? But his faithfulness bore fruit of like kind of saving us. And the same thing is true with the disciples. They submit to Jesus' kind of crazy command, and they go out, and people are healed, and the gospel is spreading. And the paradox of life is that we're actually more empowered, more free, more human, carry more authority when we submit to Jesus than when we reject him. Now, I'm aware that when I just said that, I made it sound so matter-of-fact, all you got to do is submit to Jesus. And I believe that what I said is true. You remember, I say this a lot, that when I'm preaching Jesus, we're preaching ideals, right? This is, this is preacher Jesus. But in the margins, we also see pastor Jesus. And the other six days of the week, he's always meeting imperfect people and meeting them where they're at. And so even though this is an ideal, I'm well aware that this is a lifelong challenge. From our earliest ancestors of faith in the garden, we have been skeptical that God doesn't know what's best for us. It's like it's in our DNA. If it's not, if it's not in our DNA, it's definitely in our social fabric. The world has given us way too many reasons not to submit to authority. 
reasons for self-preservation and skepticism, and I get it. I get it. But Jesus has also poured out his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who helps us to die to selfishness, to live in faithfulness to Christ, and it's going to take a lifetime, but it's a lifetime worth living. There's one more little detail about this story that gives me great hope. You know that Jesus's family, they don't come off very well in most of Mark's gospel. Earlier on in the book, they try and apprehend Jesus. They thought he was kind of going mad. They were embarrassed by him. And in this story, they're part of that group in Nazareth. No one says, but his family stood up for Jesus. No, the silence is, is palpably loud. But you know, James, his brother who's listed in the story, after the resurrection, would have a huge change of heart. And he would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem when many of the apostles looked out and dispersed into the Greek world. And so, your story isn't written yet. And the stories of the people in your life are not written yet. And I doubt any of us are perfectly submitted to Jesus today. But what would it look like? What would it look like for us to respond in faith by taking one step in the right direction? What would it look like for you to ask the Holy Spirit for help to follow Jesus more faithfully? I can guess some ways it would look like for me. I invite you to think about that in this moment. As we prepare to come to the communion table, let's take a moment of confession, silent confession of uh, ways that we've been maybe not submitting to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. See if there's a way forward for us. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. And thank you also for loving us enough to call us to more, to calling us into an abundant life, um, a life of flourishing, uh, a life of trusting that you, the one who invented us and gives us life, actually knows better than we do about what the abundant life is and what it can be. We pray, Holy Spirit, for your help uh, to follow Jesus more faithfully, more joyfully. And I pray, God, that you would break free those bonds of addiction, cycles of shame, cycles of, sh um, of sin. Have mercy on us, Lord.